another possible Trump indictment, and what it means in Georgia. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Patricia Murphy, one of your political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Greg Bluestein is off today. Coming up on today's episode, we're dissecting the breaking news that Donald Trump has been named by special counsel Jack Smith as a target in his investigation into the 2020 elections and their aftermath. And the quarterly financial reports are in. We have a look at the reports that show who Georgia's most prolific fundraisers are and who they are not. If you're just joining us for the first time, welcome. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Around lunchtime Tuesday, former President Donald Trump posted a note to his Truth social media platform saying that he'd received a letter telling him that he is a target of special counsel Jack Smith's investigation into his conduct during and after the 2020 elections, including the Capitol attack on January 6th. He called Smith deranged and leveled an all-caps response, calling the investigation a witch hunt, election interference, and prosecutorial misconduct. The news means that Trump could soon be under indictment in three and possibly four separate criminal cases if Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis decides to press charges against Trump related to the 2020 elections here in Georgia. And it raises questions about what it means for the 2024 presidential elections. Well, here to break it all down with me is Tamar Hallerman, the senior reporter who is on the team covering the Donald Trump investigations here in Georgia and um, really across the country. Tamar, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this breaking news. Always good to be here. And at this point, we're starting to lose track of all the different investigations there are against the, the former president. Yeah, it's wild. We even got news of a fifth case happening in Michigan. We're going to break that down in just a minute. But let's first talk about the news that we heard about on Tuesday from Donald Trump himself when he posted to Truth Social about the special counsel investigation by Jack Smith. Yeah, he mentioned that on Sunday night while he was with his family. Um, he ended up hearing from the the special counsel, alerting him that he's a target of the, the January 6th investigation and that he could be charged as a result. Not only that, but prosecutors were giving him four days if he wanted to go before the grand jury that's been issuing indictments to kind of tell his side of the story. Um, he is very unlikely to do that. Uh, most would-be defendants tend to not take prosecutors up on offers like this, but it goes to show just how quickly Jack Smith has worked since he was um, appointed back late last year. Um, this is an investigation that the Justice Department has been working on very quietly for a long time. Of course, they've been prosecuting folks who um, participated in the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. But the broader investigation into what former President Trump and many of his allies were doing at the White House, um, that seemed like more of a backburner investigation. 
But this goes to show that we could see potential indictments in this case within days or maybe weeks. And when it comes to the investigation here in Fulton County, it's looking very likely that Jack Smith might be leapfrogging uh, Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis. So Tamar, we saw that some Georgians had been questioned in that Jack Smith investigation. Uh, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger was one of them. Tell us a little bit about what we know of any potential connection to Georgia. Yeah, there's a couple of Georgia events that are of interest to Jack Smith, at least that we know about in the public domain. Um, We know that he's interested in the alternate electors, those 16 Georgia Republicans who cast fake uh, electoral college ballots for Donald Trump back in December 2020. That, of course, is also a key interest of the Fulton DA. Um, He also ended up questioning, as you mentioned, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. He had prosecutors come down to Atlanta at the end of June to question him. We also know that the special counsel's office was interested in talking to Chris Harvey, who was uh, the elections director for the Secretary of State's office, who has since left. Um, So certainly those are the Georgia interests that we know about. But it's very likely that there are probably others, given the scope of just how important Georgia was to Trump and his campaign in the aftermath of the 2020 elections. And you mentioned that Jack Smith has essentially leapfrogged Fonnie Willis. Uh, Does it feel like it kind of feels like to me from the outside looking and does it feel like we are treading the same territory here? Does it feel like there's overlap between these two cases or is it too soon to say? Yes and no. It is too soon to say. We don't know exactly what Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis is up to. We do know that she struck immunity deals with at least half of the Republican electors here in Georgia. But that also means that there are still some who are under active investigation, most prominently David Schaefer, who until recently was the head of the Georgia GOP, was also an alternate elector. So it's very possible um, that those folks could get indicted in Fulton County. They could still be of interest to Jack Smith. Um, at the Justice Department. Um, And so there could very well be overlap. At the same time, we're talking about two different sets of laws. Jack Smith at the Justice Department is focused on federal laws. Fonnie Willis, of course, is is focused on Georgia laws. And those differ. Some are broader and narrower than than others. And so there might be charges in one investigation that might not happen in the other. So what happens if with all of these cases moving forward, I mean, this is just like an octopus getting its arms around sort of like the entire criminal justice system all over the country. Um, With all of these cases moving forward, does one affect the other? Will this Jack Smith, um, because it's a federal case, does what does that do to the state cases? And if Fannie Willis does move forward with charges, does that mean she's on a a higher or lower rung of the ladder? How does it all work? That's something that me and my colleague Bill Rankin are still trying to untangle. You talk to the, the Fulton DA and the people who work for her, and they insist that what's happening at the Justice Department does not impact the investigation in Fulton County. And as I mentioned, we're talking about different sets of laws. And it's true. Fulton DA Fonnie Willis does not have to step aside if the Justice Department comes forward with a case first. Um, The feds don't get priority or anything like that, as far as I know. At the same time, the Fulton DA's office is limited in its resources. It's it's a county agency. It has a very limited taxpayer-funded budget. The Justice Department's budget is massive compared to Fulton County's. And so typically, or sometimes, you see agreements cut between federal and state prosecutors if there is overlap 
in cases. And that is something that in theory, Jack Smith and Fonnie Willis could be doing. That said, I've seen no evidence of that so far from either side. And if anything, Fonnie Willis has indicated she's moving full steam ahead. It doesn't matter what the feds or prosecutors in New York are are up to. Um, But that said, maybe she decides she wants to let the feds do parts of their investigation first. Um, I think where there will be the biggest challenge uh, is really just logistically in terms of scheduling court time. We're getting to the point now, you know, some 18 months, even less before the 2024 elections. There's only so much time in the calendar. Trump, of course, is expected in New York in March for the hush money trial uh, related to, to Stormy Daniels and that prosecution up there. Of course, the federal judge in the the federal documents case wants to get that over with as soon as possible down in Florida, although there's plenty of fighting over classified documents and access and how much is going to get released publicly, who can even see the evidence. And then now you potentially have this DOJ January 6th case in Washington. It's going to be pretty hard for Fonnie Willis to get Donald Trump into a courtroom especially once we start talking about the political calendar, caucuses, primaries, debates, the GOP convention next summer. Um, Scheduling things becomes a real challenge. And of course, as a prosecutor, you don't want to be seen as stepping too much, um, you know, putting your finger on the scale ahead of an election. So ideally, prosecutors like to have that stuff over with. At the same time, even after Fulton DA, Fonnie Willis, should she decide she wants to pursue an indictment against Trump, it would take a while. Um, even if an indictment is handed up by a grand jury, there's going to be lots of pre-trial motions that would be filed, lots of fighting over venue, I presume, whether this is something that plays out before a federal judge or a state judge. And that is going to eat up really valuable time. Um, so it becomes a real headache. Uh, okay, a legal question. Does Donald Trump have to be in the courtroom if these cases go to trial? Does it, Do you have to physically go to court if you are on trial? I think some of that depends on jurisdiction. For example, if Trump is indicted in Fulton County, my understanding is that he does not need to be there as charges are unsealed like he had to do in New York. He would, of course, need to come here to surrender to authorities if he's indicted here. Um, And as for the trial phase, I think a a lot of it depends on on the court and, and the judge overseeing. Okay, well, Tuesday brought us no shortage of breaking news. We also found out on Tuesday that the state of Michigan has filed charges against their own alternate electors, also known as fake electors, depending on who you're talking to. Tell us about those charges. Yeah, this one sort of came out of nowhere. Um, The Democratic Attorney General in Michigan, uh, Dana Nessel, announced on Tuesday um, that she was in char- uh, charging the 16 Republicans uh, for multiple felonies um, for their role in the the fake elector scheme. And the counts are pretty serious. I mean, they include conspiracy to commit forgery, conspiracy to commit what's called uttering and publishing, um, conspiracy to commit election law forgery. Um, and many of those charges carry maximum five years in prison. And And, you know, not only is she going after the the leaders of this, but she is charging every single person who signed their names to that fake electoral college document. It's a pretty remarkable step. And one, I don't think we're going to see followed in Georgia if, you know, we, we've we already reported that at least half of the, the alternate electors here in Georgia have immunity deals in place. Um, so certainly it's an interesting step. And I wonder if we're going to see other states, especially ones led by Democrats, make similar moves. 
Okay, well, we know that here in Georgia, the grand jury has already been seated. Tell us what you expect next in this case. What should we all be looking for um, that would be the next sort of public step that we would all see? Well, I am keeping a close eye on law enforcement because they have been told by D.A. Willis to be prepared for a potential indictment announcement anytime between July 31st and August 18th. I'm curious to see if we see any sort of increased police presence in the blocks around the courthouse um, around those days. Maybe we'll see some sort of smoke coming out of the the DA's office, you know, white smoke in, in the days before, should she decide that she wants to indict the former president? That I don't know. Um, but we're going to be closely watching those, those two grand juries that have now been seated. They are hearing any number of felony cases on a given day. They're hearing stuff like murder and arson and aggravated assault. And we can see a paper trail after they approve these indictments, but maybe they'll be quiet for a couple of days. And that's when we can kind of determine, oh, maybe the DA is presenting an election interference case. Um, hopefully, if there's going to be a leak, the AJC will, will be the one to get it. But it's something we are very closely watching in the weeks ahead. Okay, well, I'm going to be on vacation the last week in July, so I would like you to can't put in do a that. formal request that nothing <laughs> happens between now and then. Um, so, Tamar, we've covered a lot of what we already know. This is our outside looking in perspective. What else have you taken away from this day of just massive breaking news? What What's going through your head, and what should we? What else should we know as we head into these next couple of weeks? I alluded to this a little bit at the top. Um, But for the longest time, it seemed like this part of the special counsel's investigation was, if not dormant, then kind of on the back burner. And all of a sudden, we started hearing news about prosecutors interviewing folks like Brad Raffensperger. It really seemed like it sprung into action. And it also seemed like the special counsel was almost rushing to get a potential indictment out before Fonnie Willis does it in Georgia. And I'm still trying to wrap my head around kind of why that helps the Justice Department to get out ahead of Fulton County and the benefits of that, why they wouldn't want to wait a little longer. And so I'm going to be doing a lot more reporting on that in the days ahead to figure out how that could benefit or hurt the investigation in Fulton County if Fonnie Willis ends up being not the third, but the fourth prosecutor to secure indictments against Trump. Okay. Well, listen, Tamar, thank you so much for taking time out of your day. I know how busy you are covering this story. Um, For all of our listeners, uh, continue to follow Tamar and Bill Rankin's coverage on this entire series of events. They are the experts here, um, experts anywhere about what's happening here in Georgia. If you need a kind of a catch up on the case, if you want to get the background and the details of how we got here, here in Georgia, be sure to listen to Bill and Tamar's podcast. That's called Breakdown. You can find that on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And in the meantime, this is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. 
In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. And we're back with Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This is Patricia Murphy, one of your political insiders here at the AJC. I'm also one of the three authors of the Morning Jolt newsletter. We think the Morning Jolt sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You can join the community now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts and get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts so you always know what's really going on. Greg Bluestein is on vacation today and in his place, ably, and we're excited to see her, is Tia Mitchell joining us from Washington. Tia, hello. Hello. Oh, I love it when you can join the podcast. Among other things, you have so much great information coming down from D.C. And we're going to talk today first about fundraising numbers because we're getting all of those numbers in from the FEC. We're going to deal with just the federal candidates um, because they file separately from the state candidates. So I think probably the biggest top line is that Marjorie Taylor Greene, kind of despite her friction with the Freedom Caucus has raised more than a million dollars that keeps her really at the top of the pile for all House candidates across the country. Um, Other notable numbers, Andrew Clyde, even though he's really popped as a national figure, his fundraising has definitely not popped. I think we can say that he raised just $74,000, finished up with uh, just about $16,000 cash on hand. That's just not very much money. Um, Green is at the top of the heap. Clyde's at the bottom of the heap. Um, The freshmen in the caucus, Mike Collins and Rich McCormick, raised $105,000 and $271,000 respectively. And they each have about $300,000 cash on hand. So that's just a quick overview of the top lines. But Tia, let's start with that Marjorie Taylor Green number. More than a million dollars. I had had some questions about whether her grassroots fundraising would keep pace after she's had this big blow up with the Freedom Caucus. But what did you see in the numbers that caught your attention? Well, just kind of the basic fact that you pointed out that she's still raising a lot of money, a lot of money when you consider the fact that she's not a frontliner. She's not, you know, at really much risk of losing reelection. So when we look at most of the top fundraisers in the house, they're either in a really competitive district. So they, you know, they're pressed to raise money because they're going to need to spend it or they're in leadership where they're pressed to raise money because that's just kind of part of the expectation of their role. And Marjorie Taylor Greene is neither, but she is still a very prolific fundraiser now. One thing we should note is one of the reasons why she's a very prolific fundraiser, and we've talked about this on the podcast in the past, is she spends a lot of money. So 
She spends a lot of money to make a lot of money, but her burn rate this quarter, she actually spent a lot of money on fundraising consultants or things like that. And so that kind of even outpaced slightly what she raised. So that means her cash on hand went down a little bit this quarter. That's so interesting. And those are, are those all small dollar donations? Who are her donors at this point? It's a lot of small dollar donations from around the nation. That's um, one of the things that she's always been very good at is, you know, she's got a national following. She's got a national profile and therefore people all over the country send her money. And, you know, once you send any politician, I think the people at home listening know this already. Once you send them money once, you're on the email list, you're on the text message list, and they're hitting you up constantly. And so she's not only did she build a list back when she first ran in 2020, but now she keeps going back to that national well of potential donors. And she did just have, though, a fundraiser with Kevin McCarthy. What does that mean? And when will we know more about who those donors were? So unfortunately, we won't know more about those donors until the fundraising report for the current quarter comes out, which won't be until mid-October. However, we know that she said that it was a successful fundraiser. Um, It was her first time having a fundraiser in Washington. It's just the latest indication of kind of, you know, even though Margie Taylor Greene kind of came in as an outsider and very MAGA and drained the swamp, in some ways she's learning that you kind of have to wade into the swamp if you're going to play the game in D.C. And um, it's indicative of kind of, in some ways, she is picking up on the ways of the establishment, not necessarily ideologically, but in how she goes about doing the job. You know, she is saying you got to sometimes fall in line with leadership. And when the speaker says he wants to raise some money for you, you say yes. And so when that October report comes out, we expect her to have some corporate cash in ways that she hasn't before. You know, she was always pretty controversial of a figure because of the QAnon ties, because of the conspiracy theories, because of the things that she said that people have considered racist or Islamophobic or anti-Semitic. And so a lot of the corporate donors shied away from her. But again, once the speaker says, hey, I'm going to invite all my friends and hey, I expect you to cut a check from Marjorie Taylor Greene, we expect that to change when, again, when we see that report in October. Yes, I want to see who she's willing to take money from because this is more than likely going to be PAC money. These are corporation lobbyists based in D.C., get all of these invitations, come to breakfast, come to dinner, write a check, and that check is from your corporate PAC in most cases. And then which lobbyists who are kind of mainstream Chamber of Commerce types, which lobbyists are writing a check to Marjorie Taylor Greene? I mean, we're going to learn a lot about the future for Marjorie Taylor Greene just based on those kind of 
breadcrumbs to the future. I I love fun. I love going through the <laughs> FEC forms. I might be the only person because I feel like you just learn, you you find out a whole lot more. There's a lot between the lines. I feel like. Um. So let's talk a little bit about Andrew Clyde's numbers. I mean having less than $20,000 cash on hand, even in a non-competitive district, um, even when he's not, so far we're not hearing about any plans for a primary against Andrew Clyde. To me, that really is a shockingly low number. What What do you make out of that? I agree. I was shocked at how low it is, especially because, you know, his profile has risen. He was part of those roughly dozen lawmakers that stood in the way of Kevin McCarthy becoming speaker. So his name was really in the news a lot in January. Then he sponsored those bills to kind of roll back some of the legislation that the District of Columbia local government had passed. And some of them were a couple of them were vetoed or didn't pass in the Senate. But one was actually signed into law by President Biden that reverses the new criminal code in D.C., And so he got a lot of publicity for that. And then in June, after the debt limit bill, um, he was among the far right members who did not support the debt limit bill. And then, you know, he said leadership threatened him and said they weren't going to let a gun rights bill that he had. He said he was threatened that his bill wouldn't see the light of day because he voted against the debt ceiling bill. And all these other conservatives said, you know, they rallied behind him and they shut down the house floor for almost a week over that. And he was kind of their cause of action to say, Andrew Clyde was threatened and we can't have that. And so that was all, a lot of that was, you know, happening in April, May, and June, but it just seems like the dollars didn't follow. He never, he's kind of like Marjorie Taylor Greene in the fact that he's never had much corporate cash which a lot of our delegation members get a lot of corporate PAC cash. Incumbents in general get a lot of corporate political committee cash. Andrew Clyde's never had that, but just not the grassroots support either. And again, because he spent more than he brought in, um, very little cash on hand. Again, he doesn't have to be on the ballot for over a year, you know, um, And even then, we don't expect it to be very competitive, but it is kind of curious. Yeah. You know, going up against the speaker and kind of winning for a week, um, that's the type of thing where if you sent out an email to a list, of course, you'd have to get your hands on that list. You'd have to rent it. You know, you'd have to sort of plug into that online grassroots network. And that takes some ramping up. Had he been plugged into that, it seems like you could have flipped a switch and raised an easy $100,000, but he might not want to do that. I don't know. I will say he also, he sends a lot of fundraising emails. Now, again, I don't know the scope of his list. I know I'm on it, <laughs> but so I do you know see, you're not giving money. Right. And I'm, you know, I'm on, a, you know, I end up on lists because I'm a member of the media and I'll sign up to go to an event or something. And I end up on their fundraising list. So I see that he does send messages pretty regularly He also has, you know, a weekly newsletter for constituents. Of course, he's not asking for money, but he has tried to kind of put himself out there, let people know what he's doing and do the more direct requests. But I don't know. Again, I don't know if it just his list is limited or it's just his his reach. He hasn't been able to kind of 
energize people in the way that, say, a Marjorie Taylor Greene has, but he also isn't getting the corporate dollars. I, I will say that for him, the barrier to corporate dollars is, one, he's very pro-gun, very much, you know, into relaxing um, barriers to gun control that might scare off some corporate dollars, but also the comment he made about January 6th and the people mm-hmm. look like normal tourists. That's not going to be amenable to corporate cash either. Now, again, Marjorie Taylor Greene has figured out a way to still raise a lot of money without the corporate cash. And then Kevin McCarthy helped her get the corporate cash. I don't see Kevin McCarthy fundraising for Andrew Clyde anytime soon, but we'll just have to see if he turns things around. Yeah, I'm not going to set an alarm for that either. I don't think that I don't think McCarthy is going to be in his corner uh, for the time being. Um, now, let's move on to some uh, Senate numbers. I am fascinated. Now, we do not have any statewide campaigns coming up in 2024. The next campaigns um, are going to be uh, for Senate and Governor 2026. So it's not unusual Um, At this point in a cycle, particularly we're talking about kind of the first half of the first year, um, not to have a ton of cash on hand and not to be in this kind of ferocious fundraising cycle. But let's talk about Ossoff and Warnock. Um, I feel like if you gave a pop quiz to Georgians to say which one of these two has more cash on hand, they might get the answer wrong. Because right now, John Ossoff has $2.8 million cash on hand raised in the last reporting period, um, a little over half a million dollars. Raphael Warnock has $4.7 million cash on hand and raised $1.6 million. What do you read into that, knowing that Warnock um, is not on the ballot anytime soon, although he did have a, um, a runoff at the end of last cycle? Yeah, I'm not as surprised by that because... Warnock is still coming off of the momentum and the huge national profile that he raised running again for the full term, having basically the national stage to himself during the runoff because of Georgia's kind of unique system. And that wasn't all too long ago. And he's quite frankly remained in the news as one of the nation's most prominent Democrats, kind of quite frankly, more so than John Ossoff now. Ossoff will ramp back up because he will be on the ballot probably by the time it gets closer for Ossoff to run in 2026. I would expect his fundraising to be much more robust and Warnock not so much. But right now, Ossoff isn't even ramping up yet. Um, It also, quite frankly, Warnock is still in the mix as a potential presidential candidate for Democrats. Um, not in necessarily 20... in 2024. Yeah, okay. 2028. <laughs> I'm but like, like, we have breaking news. <laughs> quite frankly, I mean, 2028 is, in a, I'm not saying he's saying it, but other yeah. people are saying sure. it. But, you know, should something tragic or unforeseen happen, he's one of those pocket kind of candidates that people are considering should uh, Democrats need a break the glass emergency in 2024. Um, And so I think that, again, just Warnock still has a lot of momentum and still has a lot of attention on him. And he also, quite frankly, might still be paying the bills, you know, um, winding down 
his mm-hmm. campaign or or debts or stuff like that um because it's it, you know we think about it, it really hasn't been that long you know who still has campaign money in their account who's that john lewis interesting how much um i think it's about two hundred thousand dollars it's not and again, for John Lewis, he always was a pretty prolific fundraiser himself. And then he, you know, he passed away. He was still hoping to be on the ballot, if you remember, in t- before he passed away in 2020. And so um, he's still not necessarily raising money, but those who control his campaign accounts still have control of that money and are slowly doling it out. So I just checked his ending cash beginning. At, um, he started out the year with about $236,000 cash on hand. By the end of June, he had 185,000 cash on hand. So again, they're slowly dwindling it again, operating expenses, not so much, but they're dispersing it little by little. They're not taking in any money, but they are slowly, you know, writing checks and dispersing it. Yeah. Federal law says that those federal campaigns can uh, disperse it out to other federal campaigns or to charity, Um, which brings us to our final big number on the screen. Herschel Walker, four and a half million dollars left after that race. Now I will tell you, Donors are saying, can I have some of that money back? Of course, it's noted, it's hard to know which donors need to get their money back. Um, also, they're asking, why in the world do you have four and a half million dollars left? That is not good management of a campaign by the candidate to be sitting on a huge pile of cash at the end of a statewide race when you had a runoff that Republicans to the very end were, were certainly hoping to win and they were definitely giving money to win. So uh, what in the world? Why does he have four and a half million dollars left? Yeah. So for Herschel Walker, it's a lot different than Warnock because number one, as of right now, there's no indication that he will be a candidate again. And so it's like, what are you sitting on? It's one thing to say, I'm winding down my campaign And so I would expect him to have still some money in an account, you know, in the six figures, not the seven figures and definitely not, you know, multiple millions of dollars. It's almost like he's hoarding it. And again, like you said, he could give it to charity, give it all away, or he could give people refunds. We see that he is giving out refunds because even for this um, so far this year, They've really had to give back over. um, It looks like net they've given back over one hundred thousand dollars, the negative contributions or whatever. So it's weird. It's like, what are you hoarding? So it could be interpreted that he does think he might be a federal candidate or at least is keeping his options open. But I think people are going to want to either see this campaign account wound down or get some clear. And when I say people, the people who donated money that is leading to this four point five million dollars almost. Why are you hoarding it? Either give it back, give it away or give us a plan. 
Yes, we have asked Herschel Walker and um, any, again, he doesn't really have a staff anymore. We asked former members of his staff what the plan is. And obviously we've not gotten any answers or um, return call from Herschel Walker. We'd love to know. We'll continue to ask and we will keep the listeners of Politically Georgia posted on what in the world. Um, He did give a million dollars of that away to charities over the last uh, several months. But again, those donors are thinking, well, you know, I could just take that money back and give it to my own charity. Thanks so much. Um, They wouldn't mind seeing that money back. And and just his operating expenses, nearly $400,000 in operating expenses in just six months. You know, again, there should there is likely going to be some for several months, but $400,000 worth is, is quite a lot of money for someone who's no longer a candidate. Yes, it sure is. So it continues to be a big story. Now, we're going to wrap up this segment, but we're going to loop back to Marjorie Taylor Greene, because I think that that million dollar plus number that we saw from her really went um, toward telling us that grassroots donors are still pleased with Marjorie Taylor Greene. They feel like they know her. They feel like they like her. I will say that is not a universal um, sentiment. And we know that because Brian K. Pritchard, who is the first vice chair of the Georgia GOP, newly elected to that role in the GOP, very well known to conservatives here in Georgia. He has a web show, kind of, I guess it's what you would call it, an internet show uh, that is watched quite a bit. And he has his own news service up there in North Georgia based in Blue Ridge. Um, So Brian K. Pritchard has been quite supportive of Marjorie Taylor Greene over the last several years. However, in during his show at the end of last week, just came out slamming Marjorie Taylor Greene, particularly over um, not just her break with the Freedom Caucus, but with the difficulty he said he and her constituents and some of her grassroots supporters are having just getting in touch with her directly. And here's that sound. I know people in her district that she should be communicating with the grassroots coordinators of her district that she should be in tune with that she now tells to please speak with one of my staff. So it's not unusual when you have somebody who started as a kind of below the radar grassroots candidate, then explode onto the national scene, start to pass some of those calls off to staff. (laughs) Just say, hey, if you want a faster answer, call my communications director call my district director. But the people who feel like they got you in office don't like that answer very much. Yeah. So and I, I want to be clear with the listeners. What he's talking about is like the political insiders who expect a direct line yes. to the elected official they helped elect. He's not talking about the constituent services, the passports, the veterans, the um the folks who say, you know, the government, I need to call my congresswoman to help me. He's talking about on the political kind of side, um, because I, I say that because from what I hear, Marjorie Taylor Greene's constituent services, which are staff driven. If you need a passport, you don't care if Marjorie Taylor Greene helps you. You want somebody to help you get your passport so you don't miss your vacation. From <laughs> what we hear, she's got that pretty solid. But what Brian is saying is that us insiders, those grassroots, those, again, the ultra right, the um, 
the what's it called? The Republican General Assembly, the General Assembly people, which are kind of the offshoot of the Tea Party, the very conservative branch of the Republican Party of Georgia. Those are the folks who felt like Margie Taylor Greene is our person. We endorsed her. And it seems like some of those conservative activists are starting to get frustrated, not just because they think that some of the decisions she's making, again, some of that wading into the swamp with Kevin McCarthy, that they question, you know, like, what is she doing? That doesn't seem to really represent the type of values we thought she had politically. But it also seems, listening to his soundbite, that they feel that she's become, you know, a little bit standoffish to them. And again, like you said, these are the people who feel like they helped put her in office. They supported her. They defended her. And they're now worried that she's leaving them behind. The question is, um, is that going to affect her standing at the polls? Again, with the regular folks who aren't political insiders, And so I want to read, this is uh, last week when the media was talking to Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, talked about her decision, for example, to support the defense bill. Again, that put her on the side with um, most, most Republicans supported it, but she said she wouldn't at first because her amendments on cutting funding to Ukraine didn't pass. But she supported it. And afterwards we asked her what made her change heart. And she talked about making the decisions she felt were best. And, and also we were asking her about fundraising. And when I asked her about fundraising, this is what she said. She said, she just got some internal polling from her team. She said, the polling they just sent me basically starts out the memo saying Marjorie Taylor Greene can do no wrong. Her favorability strengthened by 16 points. In February, it was 70% favorable, 21% unfavorable. And now it stands at 80% favorable, 15% unfavorable. 64% say their strong support for MTG, as strong as ever. An eight-point increase from February. That is what she said. Her internal polling, now again, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But what she's saying is my people are telling me I'm good in my district. So all these criticisms that are coming my way is not um, affecting how voters perceive me. Okay, well, can do no wrong is the exact answer you want from your polling. So so her pollster is doing the job that they are hoping that he's going to do. We are going to bounce out of this segment. Uh, Pritchard did also have a few other things to say about Green's break with the Freedom Caucus, um, her comments about other conservatives. At one point, she said she doesn't live in a conservative fantasy land. He took a lot of issue with that. But, you know, again, he's also in the 9th District, not in the 14th District. So we'll see if his comments have um, any kind of lasting effect. But his role as that first vice chair of the Georgia GOP certainly does elevate his role even further. And um, we'll see if this war of words continues and we'll definitely keep our listeners posted. Tia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, coming up on Friday's episode, we'll answer your questions from the listener mailbag, which you can now call into. It's the Politically Georgia podcast hotline and you can call it anytime, leave a question and we'll play it back and answer it right here on the podcast. That number is 404 
AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. Let us hear from you. Well, thanks so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can find links to all of the stories we talked about today in the episode summary of this podcast. We release new episodes every Wednesday and Friday or whenever big news breaks. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.